Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. It gives me enormous pride to be an architect mentioned alongside Horace Gifford and Harry Bates, people whom I greatly admire and look up to. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. The voice you heard in our opening was today's guest, Christopher Rollins. Christopher is an architect and the principal of Rollins Design, an award-winning architecture and interiors practice based in New York City. Beginning with New York residential interiors and expanding toward homes and far-flung retail projects, his design work has been published in venues such as T-Magazine, Interior Design, Monocle, and Wallpaper. Christopher has also carved out a modest place for scholarship. Fire Island Modernist, Horace Gifford in the Architecture of Seduction, is a book that blends biography, monograph, and cultural history. As the first book to chronicle Horace Gifford and the utopia he shaped, Fire Island Modernist was widely praised and was Amazon's top-selling architecture book upon its release. An expanded second edition is currently underway. The architectural practice and his Fire Island scholarship began as separate endeavors but these are now increasingly integrated as he restores the very homes he writes about and designs beach houses for a new generation. His Fire Island research has continued with a nonprofit organization called Pines Modern, which documents, advocates for, and leads guided tours of the modernist architecture of Fire Island. In 2020, Docomomo awarded Pines Modern its Modernism in America Award. A quick reminder. As you listen along, click the link in our show notes to see the project and additional details that we discuss in this episode, or visit www.rcat.com slash podcast. Pay 
Parallel to the south shore of Long Island, New York, sits an outer barrier of narrow islets. Fire Island is a 32-mile-long island located at the Barrier Islands Center. First settled in the late 18th century, Fire Island has since grown into a popular summer attraction. It draws beach lovers from New York City and all around the world, as well as day-trippers from New York and Long Island. Fire Island has many communities. Fire Island Pines is the largest residential community on the island. In the Pines, we have a marvelous grocery store, but just a couple of restaurants. It's, the, it's a culture of dinner parties and grilling. And no matter what people have going on during the day, they always tend to congregate, you know, for a big dinner. And that's another thing that's really unique about the island. People tend to share houses communally. Oh, wow. and, and at all ages. And I could tell you, you know, when you when you pass 40, sharing anything might become, you know, a challenge. But I think for me, it's it's been a wonderful exercise in kind of mental flexibility, you know, sharing, you know, in a, in a sort of fraternity like arrangement long after my fraternity years have passed. It keeps you flexible. It keeps you with a sense of humor and with a sense of priority about what matters. It's much cleaner than my fraternity house in college. I could tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's a real big part of it. It's, it's, I have to say, you know, New York, I love New York, but it's so big and spread out that forging a kind of coherent social life can be a challenge. But because these communities are sort of small and walkable, and you're sharing a house, that kind of repetition of running into people or sharing with people really builds great friendships. And I would say about 75% of my friends at this point have a connection to Fire Island. But when you ask what the community is like, it really depends what community you're in because these are really kind of 17 kind of little constellations with dunes in between each of them. There was a journalist in the early 70s who said that Fire Island was designed by the cunning hand of nature to let New Yorkers escape the melting pot. So you have the Pines and its neighboring community of Cherry Grove, which are predominantly gay and fabulous in all the ways, you know, one might imagine. Then there's sort of Point of Woods, which is sort of the social register wasp community. There's a Jewish community, you name it. And my great pleasure is I'm not only working in the Pines anymore. There are Horace Gifford, for example, he did a wonderful house in Seaview that I'm working on. And so my commute in the summer is a water taxi between one community and the next. It's pretty good work if you can get it. Ah, I'm sitting here. Okay, it sounds so painful, that sarcasm. (laughs) So do the communities interact at all? Or are they in their own little worlds? I think to some degree they do. A lot of people visit the Pines because we have kind of the best nightlife, for example, or Cherry Grove. They also have some pretty good nightlife or they come to visit the restaurants. But I I think on the whole, yeah, the communities are somewhat autonomous and we're almost designed that way. Today, we are going to talk about two mid-century homes in Fire Island Pines, New York, the Beach Hill Walk House and the A Chat with Harry Bates House, which was named as one of the top 10 houses of 2022 by Wallpaper. The Beach Hill Walk House was designed in 1962 by Don Page. He was an associate of I.M. Pei. It was designed with an S-shaped plan that wraps around clusters of existing trees. 
The original client was an art collector, so it presented a closed facade to the boardwalk in order to maximize hanging space. The posts that held the home up were enclosed in the 1980s to create a rental apartment below. I was approached by the owners to unify the two floors to create a home for them, their adopted children, and their frequent guests. Another house called A Chat with Harry Bates is so named because Harry Bates is the original architect, and I discovered the provenance of the home when I invited Harry to the Pines to give an oral history of his work there. It's a two-story house designed in the late 1960s, with most of the spaces located above and a single bedroom below, but more of the lower level had been infilled in the 1980s with an additional bedroom and bathroom. Both projects, designed by notable architects in the 60s, were in a dilapidated state when Chris was approached by the owners. Both are studies in how to faithfully restore mid-century architecture while incorporating resiliency and contemporary creature comforts. I think with restoration, especially when you're dealing with a house that has some historic you know, import, it's easy for people to get paralyzed in a restoration project and to think that everything must be saved. And it was really helpful for me to actually interview the architects who practiced out there and to research their archives. I found that they often returned to their projects to make changes and additions as the need arose. They were remarkably unsentimental about their own work. And this makes sense when you consider that the whole point of modern architecture was to reflect the needs of today, which is not to say that they didn't respect the great ideas behind the houses, but the houses were good enough and flexible enough to be changed. So I always try to stay true to the essential ideas behind a house while maintaining a flexible attitude about how to make it work for this moment in time. You know, it's of course not always possible to interview the original architect or study their archive, but if you know of other projects by the same architect, you can understand the breadth of their thinking and sometimes apply ideas gleaned in one house and apply it to another. Something else that I have found is that these houses have a lot to teach us about what is important. They're modest in scale, they sit lightly on the land, they encourage people to gather communally rather than retreat to large bedrooms. And in this way, they, I think, point to how we might live today. As I mentioned, both houses have two floors, with the upper floor being much more integral to the original design. They were more, and we decided in both cases to more or less preserve the upper floor plan, although of course bathrooms were redone and finishes were reinvestigated and so forth. The Beach Hill Walk House's lower level had actually been destroyed during Hurricane Sandy, so reconstructing that was a pretty easy call. It also was not original to the design, and so we didn't really worry about, you know, adhering to what had been there. The Harry Bates House's lower level alterations were really so antagonistic to views of the garden and to air circulation and the rest of the house that we also completely started that from scratch. With certain concerns about resiliency, there was a lot of other work to do there on a lower house level that can flood. So both houses now emphasize their original upper levels, and the lower levels are stained a darker shade and kind of recede in the overall composition. They both have expansive north and south glazing that bring in light in the ocean breeze. 
whereas the east and west facades are more closed. Those view the adjacent lots, so there's a sort of privacy concern. And also, of course, you know, north and south light is the easiest to modulate. And that also is consistent with the way that the ocean breezes pass through the house. When designing on Fire Island, a point of focus for Chris is zoning. Fire Island has a particularly strict zoning code, which can provide some challenges. You can only cover 35% of the lot, which is typically 6,000 square feet. So the footprint of the house, including decks and pools and roof overhangs, cannot exceed 2,100 square feet or exceed two stories. So at the first meeting with your typical Fire Island client, I generally get to deliver the news that the work they want to do is going to cost twice as much as they hoped, and their house will be smaller than when we started in order to legalize the lot coverage. And that's when the the stiff drinks start being poured. And this is all happening in a context of people wanting more creature comforts than people generally demanded in the 1960s. So that's really the most difficult thread to needle. For the Beach Hill Walk House, we couldn't expand the footprint, but there was a prominent gable set on posts which sheltered the front entry, and this counted as lock coverage. So we enclosed the gable in glass, providing an internal stairwell and a more welcoming entryway. As I mentioned, this house was originally for an art collector, so it had a very closed facade, and most Fire Island homes are positively voyeuristic in their relationship to the boardwalk. So this glassy entryway functions a bit like a lantern, providing views into and out of the house. In the case of the Harry Bates house, it possesses a very serene, simple architecture that was undermined by a veritable junkyard of mechanical equipment. The pool filter, the HVAC equipment, the pool heater, and so forth were sort of scattered willy-nilly around the property. The electrical connection from the telephone pole to the house was draped over the front entry. The stuff that just drives architects mad. (laughs) (laughs) And in the new design, all of the mechanical equipment is tucked away on one side, sort of a sacrificial facade, which provides aesthetic and auditory relief to the rest of the house. And solid fencing used to hem in different portions of the yard. And this fencing was all moved to the perimeter and rendered in a textured design that creates privacy and shadows while allowing uh, breezes to pass through. Earlier, Chris mentioned that the Beach Hill Walk House's lower level was destroyed in Hurricane Sandy. This event and other environmental characteristics played a role in product selection for these homes. One thing both houses had going for them, at least in their more pristine upper levels, is that There's no drywall. And when you think about a house on stilts that's kind of swaying in the wind in a damp ocean climate, drywall is just something that tends to crack and mold and so forth. And so they're rendered basically in cedar walls inside and out. Oh, wow. And so we kept that aesthetic. I'm personally in my own apartment in the city. The only thing that's visible drywall is the ceiling. (laughs) It's just an inert and dead material to me that I find no redeeming value in. At the Beach Hill Walk House, we replaced a very cumbersome wood-burning fireplace with a sleek floating ethanol fireplace by a company called Fire Orb. It hangs from the ceiling and it can turn to face the living or the dining area. No way. And that really became a wonderful kind of spatial and sculptural moment in that 
room. And then it had been covered in some very undistinctive white vinyl tile. And so we replaced those with large format porcelain tiles called Flow from Stone Source. And these were used throughout in a graduated color scheme from white to dark charcoal. And then in the Harry Bates house, we did a Swedish race high efficiency wood stove, which replaced the original fireplace. And the mate line of porcelain tiles from Stone Source were used. And these have a look like slabs of cast concrete. They're really quite lovely. I have a love affair with concrete inside the house. (laughs) So are these largely vacation homes or am I reading that wrong? Yes, you're you're right and you're wrong. Okay. (laughs) And what I mean about that is the Fire Island season used to be about four or five months long, but the pandemic accelerated an already existing trend toward longer seasons. And as this has happened, I've actually felt a need to introduce more color into the houses. As I mentioned, the vocabulary of Fire Island homes tends toward the austere with you know, cedar cladding and expanses of glass. And these are very pure and sculptural statements when they're surrounded by verdant trees. But as the leaves fall, the effect can be a bit monochrome. And so at the Harry Bates house, it has these prominent overhangs. And that's the first thing that people see when passing by. So we clad the underside of these overhangs in multicolored tile and then uplit them. And it's sort of a bit of blue sky in the dead of November. I'd love to tell you that, you know, everything about the construction of these houses was innovative, but frankly, a lot of it is very straightforward. And that's really a function of the contractors out there, most of whom are you know, old timers that are really great at woodworking, but decidedly low tech in their approach. As a barrier island community surrounded by a national park with access only by boat or ferry, you can imagine bringing these projects to life has some unique obstacles. I think complaining about construction is probably the most well-worn cocktail party conversation out of the island. It's It's a challenge. Everything, like I said, everything has to be brought over these narrow boardwalks. The only vehicles to speak of are, you know, little electric carts where you can, and so everything, it's all, it's all the architecture of sticks, basically. Lightweight materials, you have to hand carry them from the boardwalk, from the, from the main boardwalk to the property. And so it's genuinely hard for the contractors to work. It's also a bit of a closed loop of sort of old timers who like to do things in their way. And so it, it is challenging, but, you know, the, the beauty and the culture of the place is really so unique that people put up with it and they soldier on. Well, you, you need an excuse for those cocktail parties, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So restoring any structure that's, you know, in a largely dilapidated or worn, in your case, sounds like damaged state from Hurricane Sandy, is going to have its surprises any existing building renovation, you're like, oh, didn't know that was there. Were there any surprises on these two homes that, you know, caused you to pivot or change your design or go, how are we going to deal with that? I do think that the the trickiest question to answer was building in resiliency. How extensive and how far do you go with that? We wrestled with how to design the lower levels in particular. A lot of the oceanfront houses here are actually being raised and moved back from the sea. These were not oceanfront homes. They're more inland, although, like I said, inland on a sandbar. So 
there's no real inland. So we sort of struck a middle ground. We didn't raise the houses, but the lower level floors are all rendered in porcelain tile. And the conduit was run from the ceiling as opposed to from the floors. And the outlets are located two feet off the ground. And then rigid foam insulation resists mold. And so in this way, a flooding event becomes an inconvenient mopping exercise instead of a gut renovation. So that was really the middle ground that we struck in both cases. Those are some great solutions. I have to admit that, you know, I've always wondered about these. We're lucky in Oregon that, you know, we don't have tornadoes or hurricanes, those kinds of, we live in fear of an earthquake. But, you know, every time you see something like Hurricane Sandy on the news or those kinds of events and the damage it does to these homes, and then you see people rebuilding, you have, I have to ask myself, why would you do it again? <laughs> you know, it's it's not like there aren't hurricanes every year. It doesn't mean that they're going to hit your house. But I imagine there must be a real love of the community and the environment there that people come back with the potential that there's more of that. So anything you can do to make a house better withstand it. Sure. And there's also been an enormous and really kind of heroic effort by the Army Corps of Engineers where they dredged and brought in tons and tons of sand across the entire length of the island to sort of rebuild the dunes and the beach. And this is an ongoing battle, but you can imagine they had to enter into binding legal agreements with every single property owner along a 30-mile stretch uh, barrier island. So it was a long process and so many leaders in the community I was not among them, really put in so much effort and time, and it's bought us another 25 years or so. Obviously, we may not have longer than that, but hopefully it'll give us just a leg up, and then we'll see what happens. So the sandbar got a little bigger. (laughs) Temporarily. After working through these projects, Chris's experience revealed some potential opportunities for future work on Fire Island. You know, I think what I'd like to explore is in some limited way, having sort of prefabricated elements integrated into the houses. And I don't think it's a, it's a congenial landscape for prefabrication with a capital P in the sense that, you know, you kind of have to assemble everything on site, but I do think there are certain pieces of it that maybe we could find a way to integrate. It's really just about making them a little more sophisticated and getting a little more craft out of things in some cases. We're working on a house in the Hamptons, for example, where we might have an opportunity to do other kinds of envelope assemblies. Like I was listening, for example, to your podcast with a gentleman who designed a passive house And that sort of challenge, you know, would be really enjoyable for me. It might not be the challenge to do on Fire Island, where you don't, you're not necessarily there in January, where you've got to keep out the 18 degree cold. But as you know, you know, practicing architecture is very much the art of picking your battles. And so as I get more acquainted with the culture of building and so forth, and as maybe more options open, maybe more people start to practice out there with a different sort of emphasis on how they build. I just want to be able to vary the approaches we take. Before we close out this episode, I always try to gain some additional insight from our guests about the greater industry. Restoring mid-century architecture is very specific work. 
I asked Chris if there were any instances that changed the course of his career. Until I began to research Fire Island's architecture and culture, you know, I really thought of it as a kind of solitary endeavor. When everyone wanted to be, you know, Frank Gehry or Rem Koolhaas or Zaha Hadid, you know, jetting around the world to unveil their latest masterpiece. And, and no disrespect to those, you know, geniuses, but it was really kind of the heroic model of the architect. And as a result, it was kind of disconnected from a sense of community. And I really feel like the most important thing I've done professionally is to focus on others' careers and a specific community. And subsequent to that, you know, establishing myself as part of a proud lineage of modernists practicing on Fire Island rather than some sort of, you know, heroic outlier. It gives me enormous pride to be an architect mentioned alongside Horace Gifford and Harry Bates, people whom I greatly admire and look up to. With the unique setting of this work, I was also curious what advice Chris would share with an up-and-coming architect that wanted to also restore mid-century architecture. It's incredibly helpful to actually live in the place that you're designing for. And, you know, I remember a few years ago, there was uh, another Harry Bates house that was restored, and it was all very aesthetically quite beautiful, photographed great. But, you know, the kitchen looked like something that came out of, you know, Barbie's dream kitchen. You could fit about two people in it and it just didn't work. There were like (laughs) two cupboards for glasses. But when you live out there, you realize you're having 12 people over for dinner. You need a bar. You need places to store things. You need lots of counter space. You know, you actually live in a certain way and you can't just be about the aesthetic. It has to be about how people actually commune together. And commune is the key word out there because it's very much about sharing and being together and and a social life. And so that is, you know, really essential that you're not kind of designing some universal space, but something that's a bit more specific. And really just, I, I love the fact that I originally approached this with no real design agenda. It was as a kind of budding historian. And that was a great kind of gateway in where I could just not have any preconceived notions. I was just thinking, this looks really beautiful. This looks really interesting. What are the ideas behind it? Right. And so the the sort of subtitle of my book, Horace Gifford and the Architecture of Seduction, that's really kind of the twist on it where these houses are not just these sculptural objects in, in a kind of lunar scape, they are part of a community and they interact with the community. And they're, they're really kind of stage sets for an emerging culture and lifestyle that flourished out there. And so that, again, goes to this notion of local and specific. I, I love that. I just, raising my kids in the suburbs and, you know, the cookie cutter, mm-hmm. I had the cookie cutter house. And that does get missed, that designing the space for the way people are going to live in that space, in that community, that gets missed a lot, you know, and I understand why it is, but everything's about budget and schedule and getting it done. And that personality is like, you know, you talked about that small kitchen in the the Barbie kitchen, and I'm sitting there going, how do you entertain? It's the first thing that popped into my head. Sure. Especially in a place like that, where that is 
your entertainment, that your day-to-day life is interacting with other people and come by and have this new cocktail. (laughs) I both celebrate and complain about the fact that Fire Island is basically variations on eating and drinking. (laughs) I don't see any issue with that at all. It sounds amazing to me. At the end of the day, our industry and the work that we do is all about the people and the communities that we touch. I really enjoyed this conversation with Chris. I hope this episode sparks a new idea, helps you solve a problem that you've been working through, or inspires the mark that you hope to leave on this world on your path to world domination. I actually am very fond of something that Frank Lloyd Wright said near the end of his life when he was asked his thoughts on immortality. And he said this, he said, to me, young has no meaning. It's something you can do nothing about, nothing at all, but youth is a quality. And if you have it, you never lose it. And when they put you into the box, that's your immortality. And so for me, I have no doubt that pouring over these old houses is keeping me young. And that celebrating others is the legacy that I am most proud of. And for which maybe I might leave some trace on this earth. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, rcat has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try rcat and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.